Thank you for joining me today. This is Colin Hamilton, Commodities Analyst at BMO Capital Markets. And welcome to our short Metals Matters podcast where we highlight the key things you need to know in global metals and mining this week. There really is nowhere else I can start this week but China. It's been a crazy time for China's economy over the past month. Seen surprise rate cuts, conflicting views on the nature of any stimulus, a catastrophic flooding, indebted property developers, conglomerates essentially playing a game of who blinks first with the government. And this all comes against a backdrop of continued data disappointment when the PBOC starts using phrases such as targeted forceful monetary policy and forcing the state-owned banks to intervene in the currency, it only reinforces that things certainly aren't business as usual in China at the moment. Um, Of all the weak data we've seen published for July, I'd say the credit data was the worst. New RMB loans, just $346 That's the lowest monthly number we've seen since 2009. And the increase in total social financing was a tenth of that seen in June. Looking again, I mean, medium to long-term household loans, that's mainly mortgages, they fell. This all points to weak credit demand, but also perhaps banks becoming a bit more wary of the liquidity risk given some other market developments, given we've had Country Garden, China's largest private home builder, missing payments on its international bonds, and uh, Zhongzhi Enterprise reportedly defaulting on wealth management products. Financial market and systemic risks from that is something that China will clamp down on pretty quickly. So in both cases, the companies have all played this. They said, we're, we're going to look to leveraging our too-big-to-fail status and force a government bailout because they know that any default would destabilise the fragile property sector further and damage both consumer and business confidence. What happens now? Well, I was lucky enough this week to ha- host a video cast with my old friend Paul Cavey from East Asia Econ to discuss this. Paul believes that a lack of consensus among key Beijing economists and how best to drive consumer demand growth, given the traditional methods of pumping through fixed asset investment and hoping you get the trickle down, hasn't really come through. And because of this uncertainty, we've seen the inertia in policymaking. On a balance of risk, however, Paul does see a cyclical floor in data. And second, derivative economic improvement, given China still actually has some tailwinds, including things like energy transition-related exports, the worst of deflation is in the past, and crucially, expectations are now so low. One very interesting point he made regarding demand, he thinks hukou reform to get the 300 million or so urban migrant spending is the untapped resource that Beijing could mobilise through social security and consumption grants. Personally, yeah, I certainly expect some more policy response over the coming weeks, as I do think there needs to be more of a clear floor in the real estate market. From a fundamental metals perspective, I would see any rally on this as likely to be relatively short-lived given the underlying fundamentals. While we're talking China, let's look at something a little bit different. That being China's influence on the gold market. After all, ongoing purchases by the People's Bank of China has led to significant market discussion over how much gold, after all, China is the world's largest gold consumer, well, how much does it actually consume? We've taken a look at this, and to be honest, based on the available data, it's pretty much impossible to conclude definitively if official stated gold reserves differ to actual gold holdings. However, our analysis would certainly suggest that above-ground reserves of gold in China, both those privately owned and owned by the central bank, are significantly higher than the reported annual demand figures we see in many publications. Key to everything 
in China and gold is the Shanghai Gold Exchange, where withdrawals over the last decade totaled just over 19,000 tonnes, while published consumer demand was just 10.8 thousand tonnes. The bulk of the disparity is believed to be comprised of direct purchases from the, the gold exchange from jewellery fabricators, bullion banks and institutional investors. Given the geopolitical backdrop, concerns over US dollar dominance, we view further net additions to gold holdings as highly likely. So where could China's gold holdings get to? Many industry participants believe that 5% of official holdings being in gold is, a, is the magic number. Well, today's gold prices, that would require an additional 638 tonnes of PBOC purchases above current state holdings. But if you want an upside case, if China's central bank gold holdings were to represent the same relative volume compared to M2, as in the US, it would translate into 15,320 tonnes of total gold reserves. That's more than a seven-fold increase from current levels. We are definitely in one of those phases where everything does seem to be about China in metals and bulk commodity land. However, I'd highlight again that in 2023 thus far, China's metals demand has arguably surprised the upside, whereas ex-China has seen inflation do its job on the industrial economy. We're very much at the seasonal ebb and activity during the Northern Hemisphere summer months, but I still think it's worth taking a quick snapshot of where some of the ex-China indicators are at the current time. There's plenty of negative data points around in the euro area, flash manufacturing and now even the flash services PMIs the month of August are firmly in contraction. Private sector activity is now shrinking at the fastest pace since November 2020. In the US, manufacturing PMI flash dropped back to 47 in August from 49 in July and that's driven by a decrease in output and a more pronounced drop in new orders. Indeed, only 23% of the PMIs we track at the moment are in expansion. And in addition, semiconductor sales continue to slump and global trade is negative year on year. However, I would say there's probably an increasing number of data points suggesting we are closer to a floor here. As an example, the OECD lead indicator for Europe is now positive and the NAFTA one looks like it might be as well next month. We had US industrial production rising sequentially in July after a couple of months of decline. Container indices, which are a very good barometer of global, uh, the global economy, they are starting to rise again. And ex-China steel output was positive year on year for the first time since 2021 in July. There is still some hope out there. Lastly this week, I wanted to talk about BHP's latest Economic and Commodity Outlook publication. I'm very impressed with this document. It's detailed, it's fair, has some excellent thought leadership. You also have to respect putting views out there in the public domain in the modern world. So kudos to the team at BHP. So what's the synopsis? Well, the report naturally makes reference to the energy transition being a key demand driver for industrial metals, but balances this by saying traditional demand drivers are also of secular importance. Uh, population growth, urbanisation, rising living standards, they remain key to the demand thesis for decades to come. And despite a natural forecast slowdown in China's growth rates, it's still viewed as being the largest incremental volume driver of global industrial value add and fixed asset investment activity for the foreseeable future. And the report also addresses some of the elephants in the room and, to be fair, does not shy away from some of the major challenges for BHP's core commodities. 
discusses the drop in China property news starts, the rise of scrap, and how Simon do and enhanced Chinese domestic production might change iron ore market dynamics. In my view also paints a relatively subdued picture of 2024-25 copper and nickel fundamentals owing to rising supply. In the main, yeah, we agree with my, many of the themes and uh, much of the content presented in the report, but yeah, as might be expected, there are some areas where we take a different view. For one, BHP still utilises incentive pricing for copper, with the implication that the supply side will solve the market problem. We believe demand adjustment through higher prices will be required to bring the copper market to balance. Uh, supply side has missed the boat on this one. Also, in the entire report, we don't see a mention of iron ore pellets or pellet feed once. Of course, we believe these will be crucial growth areas in steel's decarbonisation path over the coming years. Thank you for listening to Metal Matters and look out next week for a special on uranium ahead of the World Nuclear Symposium being held in early September. Uh, In this, Alex Pierce and I will discuss some of the findings of our recent deep dive into uranium, nuclear and in particular the growing importance of the small modular reactor thematic. That was Metal Matters, presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Metal Matters on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers, or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more episodes, including our other podcast series, BMO Equity Research in Tune. If you have feedback or suggestions for upcoming podcasts, please do share it with me at colin.hamilton at bmo.com. To access our full disclosures, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com forward slash public hyphen disclosure.